Your father actually trafficked you to America. Yeah, that was not the first time he had done that. Quickly realized that my role in that family was to take care of the, the little girl um, and please the man sexually. Beginning of high school, um, a man pimped me, you know, for a while. And so that is a form of trafficking, being pimped. But the number one most trafficked population group in the U.S. actually is Black women, Black teenagers, you know? And so a lot of times we think, oh, it's Becky with blonde hair. No, because that's who they show in the media. But our Black women are being trafficked the most, period, in America. Now, overall, in the world, Asian women are the most trafficked. One of the foster brothers tried to, uh, held us all hostage in the home, tried to kill us all. Let me tell you, the level of trauma has been real, okay? One of the homes had a foster dad who would make us essentially do sexual favors for him before we would be able to earn our allowance. Hi guys, and welcome to Candid Podcast with me, Lady T. This is the podcast where I dive into many topics and issues relating to faith, relationships, life, politics, and so much more. Now, today we are going to be discussing and talking about a sensitive but necessary subject about sex and human trafficking. My guest today is a survivor of sex trafficking and who is now um, thriving as a mom, as an entrepreneur, a speaker, a writer, life coach, business consultant, mental health counsellor. She is an advocate for current and form former uh, foster youth and those who suffered abuse through sexual exploitation and human trafficking. Welcome, Elsa Christie Marley. How are you? I, I'm doing so good, Lady T. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm so excited to talk to your audience and just have a good time today. Honestly, thank you so much for uh, for saying yes. And um, so just a quick backstory as to how I got in contact with Elsie. So I recently joined Clubhouse, yes, finally, because I'm on Android. <laughs> we're a bit late to the party, but we're there. And Elsa was on a, um, on one of the, in one of the rooms talking and I just found um, her story so fascinating. She only gave a snippet of it and I just went to her profile and I was just like, whoa, like, I want to hear her story because when you were speaking, you spoke with passion, you spoke with conviction. Um, and I was just like, yo, this lady is like, Ooh, she, she's, she's got something here. She's got something here. So, um, so yes, yeah, so I thought, okay, you know what, let me hit you up. And then, you know, just reading your bio, reading everything that, that's kind of like you've gone through and the things that you're advocating for. I was like, no, nah, I have to, I really have to talk to you and, you know, just dive in deep about, you know, all the stuff that's, uh, that's happened to you and how you're moving forward with it and especially as a christian as well exactly. because you know as christians we go through a lot <laughs> we go through a lot and um things that people those who aren't christians mm -hmm. think that we don't go through but we actually do as well just as the same yeah. um you know so so all right so let's 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 take it back to um the beginning let's talk about um you growing up like you know where where was home for you where was where was the country of birth for you and what was that like 
Yeah, so I was actually born in Cameroon, West Africa. Um, so an amazing, yeah, so I'm, I'm Sud Camerounaise. I speak French, that's my first language. So yeah, but um, yeah, so I grew up in Cameroon to a very big family, um, lots of cousins and nephews and uncles and all the things. Um, we had a seemingly, you know, good, you know, like upbringing, it was not some terrible thing, at least as a little, little child, right? I had a great upbringing. We always were surrounded with joy and lots of love and parties, lots of parties, right? Um, my family constantly had people over, we're always cooking, always eating, playing and having good a good time, you know? So Cameroon was my birth home, but I, I did travel as we talk a little bit more um, about my life. I traveled a lot and moved around a lot throughout my life. So, but my birth home was Cameroon, so yeah. Wow. So are you, are you fluent in, is it Francophone? Is it Francophone or is it, is it French? It's, it's French. So it's Franco, you're a Francophone person if you speak French and you're from the French part of Cameroon. So I was born in Yaoundé. And so, yeah, so I speak French and yeah. Wow. Okay. Awesome. So how long did you live in Cameroon um, for until, you know, uh, you came, I guess you moved countries completely? Yeah, so I lived in Cameroon till, till I was about eight and a half, nine years old. Um, my mother and father were, ne- were not married. So they had me um, and they were young. My mom was 16 years old. My dad was 20 and, you know, they were just doing whatever they were doing. I have no idea. Um, but she ended up, of course, getting pregnant. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, like as a young woman, young mom, she did all that she could to take care of me. But her and my dad kind of always switched back and forth um, with me. And so it was just, you know, one of those types of situations where once my mom passed away when I was eight and a half, I ended up being with my dad now. And so we started this whole journey of like essentially moving all over the place. So um, yeah, I was there till I was eight and a half, nine years old, so yeah. Wow. And what was your relationship with your dad like? Was it, would you say it was a good relationship? Um, And, you know, if he's still alive, is that still the same thing? Or has that changed? Like, what was that relationship like? Well, the relationship with my dad when I was really young was what I would say, okay. So I was a daddy's girl. I had a very big family. I was actually closer to my my one of my dad's brothers, um, one of my uncles, and he was really more like my dad because I felt like he cared more about me. It was more like intimately involved in my life. My father was always very busy, kind of doing his thing. He was a journalist at the time, just all traveling all over the place, and um, didn't really seem to be that like loving and caring. Um, We'll talk a little bit more about my dad in a a second, but my dad, um, unfortunately, he cares only when it really benefits him. And so um, unfortunately, he was just, he and I, I was a daddy's girl, but I was not very close to him. My mom and I had a very good relationship. Mm -hmm. I I feel, I believe that I'm very much like my mother. I don't remember too much about her, but I, I had, she was just very vibrant from what I remember, just was always going, moving around, always doing a bunch of fun things. It was just a young, vibrant person. And she just unfortunately didn't get to live the fullness of life. But so, cause she passed away at age 28 um, when I was of course um, eight and a half, nine years old, but she was just, you know, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Okay. So, you know, you're in Cameroon growing up, you're eight, you're with your dad. So when did, um, when did things begin to like change or was it a sudden change or was it a gradual change? Um, I think it was gradual for some part. So my dad was always abusive towards me. So when I started working on, um, 
my memory and understanding like what actually happened to me mm. and piecing pieces back of my life. I realized that my dad had always abused me. He was sexually abusive from probably, I want to say about age three or four years old, as far back as I can remember. But a lot of those memories were very suppressed. And so when my mom passed away, we actually ended up moving um, to Japan um, with my stepmom and my, my half brother and, and stepbrother. And so we lived in Japan for some time. Unfortunately, my dad was still being abusive, um, verbally, physically, sexually. Um, he, you know, hit me um, really, really bad, hit my stepmom, did some things. But uh, at the end of the day, we end up moving back to Cameroon, just my father and I, because they end up getting a divorce. Mm -hmm. And that's when things like suddenly took a shift. My dad, um, I got raped, you know, for the first time when I was about, was it 12 years old? Um, and immediately after that was when my dad trafficked me to the United States, to a man in Michigan. So everything was just very sudden. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. Wait, wait. so usually when it comes to the trafficking it's usually you know they're abducted or somehow you know groomed but your father actually trafficked you to america yeah that was not the first time he had done that he had um i would find out later on that my aunt um who is actually now like has a lot of mental health issues and has not spoken uh for over 20 years she's schizophrenic and all these things but I believe that she was his first victim. Um, and so like, it, it's just, yeah, I, I know. A lot of people think trafficking is always this stranger that just comes and like takes you and, and snatches you away and does all these things. But actually a lot of trafficking survivors are trafficked by their parents because of, for money, for just because someone has a perverse spirit, which is what I believe is the problem with my dad. My dad unfortunately has a spirit of perversion. And I say a spirit of perversion, it's really bad. Um, I've always known him to be watching porn, to be very um, sexually violent, to be very, all these things. And so while he has high, you know, governmental jobs and does all these things that are in the public eye, unfortunately, there's a spirit of perversion that has a hold of him that he exploits women as a result. And unfortunately, his daughter, I happen to be one of those victims. So, yeah. Was your mother ever a victim? I honestly think that my mom was, but I never got to be able to talk to my mom to understand or know that whether or not she was. Um, because my mom was 16 when she met my father. And I really feel that he had groomed her to do whatever it was. And she got pregnant. And I remember her a story that my mom tried to abort me twice. And so I could only imagine why she would have tried to abort me, you know, um, because I was unwanted. If it was this man that was doing some things that was not appropriate or whatever, I could imagine. They never got married. I know that. My mom never liked my dad. Their families never got along. And so it's not like he was ever trying to court her for marriage. It was one of those things that as I look back and I go, my mom was probably a victim. I believe my mom had gone through some similar things that I went through. And unfortunately, generational cycles of stuff was beginning to happen where I essentially endured certain things that I believe my mom endured. But the Lord graciously is using me to break all of that stuff, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And like when this abuse was happening, um, let's say just, just to quickly talk, touch on this before you moved to America, like when this abuse was happening in Cameroon, like were you able to tell anybody at all? Like were you able to run to someone and say, this is what, you know, this is what daddy's doing or 
someone trusted were you able to tell anybody because you were only eight at the time right yeah well I was like I said the abuse started at a younger age um but you have to remember when sometimes uh, trauma happens to people at a very young age, what ends up happening actually is that your brain begins to compartmentalize and hide certain stories to protect itself, right? And so there's some things that I didn't start really realizing happened at such a young age to like, you know, about four or five years ago, I'm going, oh my God, I was probably five when such and such happened. I think I was you know, six when this and that happened, like memories start to come back and you have to deal with that because it's like, oh, I just thought my dad had just trafficked me and beat me really bad. But then you go, that was actually my dad that was laying in bed with me, touching me. Like, so you, you remember things like that and you're going, oh, this is actually worse than what I thought, you know? But when you, when you look at the full picture, it makes more sense as to why he would have done the thing that he did. Mm-hmm. And so is it easy to tell someone in your family that someone's hurting you? No. We have a very close, tight-knit family. Everyone kind of supports the patriarch, who is my dad, who gives people money and does whatever he does. And, you know, and so people are not going to sit there and just be like, okay. When I finally stood up for myself, I remember my family disowned me. It was like, how dare you put put our family business out there? How dare you speak against your dad? How dare you say this? We don't talk about that. That was a long time ago. They want you to essentially forget about it and act as if it never happened. But part of the reason why cycles are perpetuated and why people are still trapped and in pain so much is because we keep trying to hide things. We don't allow like to be shown in things that I know in my life that I'm not going to do is allow myself to stay hidden or allow things to continue to be hidden where the enemy gets to have its playground and do things that are just wreaking havoc on my life and the life of others. So, yeah, yeah. but it was not a safe place to share. So, wow. Gosh, I, I can imagine that, that, that whole thing about, and I guess it's, I don't know if it's an African culture thing where like you, if, if someone is doing harm to you, it's like you can't say anything like you have to live with it and then that's when the cycle begins and continues and sometimes it will take years until one person in a generation is like no we need to stop it needs to cut it but and i and i think that's one of the things that's plaguing africans with the whole culture thing like if someone does bad to you you've you got to suck it up and just continue and it's like it's not it's not right it's no it's not fair no yeah and I, enjoy I think I think more than anything, it's really a shame thing, right? So go back to Genesis and go back to what happened when Adam and Eve essentially obeyed God. What was the first emotion that essentially happened? Shame, right? And so, um, and the root of shame is really fear. Well, so when there's this fear of what people are going to now start thinking of me, are they going to think that I wanted this? Are they going to think that I enjoyed it? Because our body, even when you're being abused, like your body naturally is going to respond to certain things in certain ways. It may be like, this is bad. This is disgusting. But what do you do when the pleasure side of your brain is still going, okay, but I'm still turned on by something right like it's very confusing it's shameful and then it's like oh and this is my dad that's doing this you know or this is my uncle or whatever it is like so shame which is rooted in fear comes and gets a hold of us and then we just go I'm just gonna be quiet because if I say something then there's gonna be judgment there might be retaliation there might be anger I might lose status or whatever it is my family won't be seen as these noble people that everyone sees them as and you're trying to protect abusers in 
instead of actually just speaking out and speaking up. And so that's what I found myself doing and knowing that it was not going to be a safe space to be like, Hey, this is what dad is doing. So, yeah. yeah. Oof, wow. My goodness. Okay. So from when your dad trafficked you to America, did you know what was happening or was it like, no. what were the steps that happened? Like, did he say that you were going somewhere or was it like this person's coming to uh, take you for a new life? Like, what was it? And then ha- then what happened when you got to America? Yeah, so you have to understand at this point, I'd already traveled some in my life. And so it was like, oh, well, we were used to traveling, we were used to doing things. Um, unfortunately, right before I, I was trafficked here, I had gotten raped, right? And I didn't realize so, realize so later that that rape was actually priming for me to be with this person that I ended up being with. Because I remember when I went to my dad and I told him, I didn't share with him that I was raped, but I said, it was almost immediately when the, when the guy did it, I remember just bleeding for a very long time and me sharing to him, I said, daddy, I'm bleeding. I don't know what to do. And instead of him even asking, is it your period? Is it this, or is it that? Like, of course, I'm not trying to get this man in trouble, but I'm hurting down there. My dad was just like, no one cares. Just essentially like told me to just suck it up, you know? And, um, and I just remember, no, I'm not kidding. I remember just feeling so distraught and he was just like he was like no one cares go over there go go put something on and you'll be fine you know how African parents can be sometimes and I just remember feeling so devastated because I wanted him to ask questions I wanted him to to probe a little bit more and to like ask me why I'm hurting why am I bleeding down there why what does a girl do I have not even started my period yet you know and so this was very like hard for me for him for me to try to share this with him covertly and him not even wonder what was actually happening but when I look back to why he was so callous is because he knew what had happened and it was not but a few I want to say within a few weeks that I was trafficked to this man in Michigan and so I end up what was being told to me was I'm going to go stay with my uncle in America. My dad will be joining me later. We're going to be starting a new life in America and it's going to be great. And so you're a child, you're, you've seen Disneyland, you've seen all these things online. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be going to America. Like, this is a perfect place, Melrose Place. We're going to be in California. You're going to be seeing Beverly Hills. Like, mm-hmm. I'm excited about all these things. And so I go and a man picks me up and immediately I'm like, this this does not look like anyone in my family. And plus, I don't even know anyone in my family that's really like living, living in the US. And so I was a little bit confused, but I just, I'm not going to doubt my dad. So I go into to live with, uh, with this man in his home and immediately I'm going, first of all, he's not African. He's an American man. Like when we have strong African roots, I'm 99.9% African. <laughs> like all of my family has strong African roots. And so I'm going, this is not, this is not my family and he's black. got the he there's black? a woman there a young hmm? was he black oh. yeah he was black yeah he was a black man and how old um similar this time i was about 13 years old mm-hmm. okay okay yeah so he was it was a beautiful area in michigan ann arbor michigan it's he was not like super wealthy but he was he was not poor either like a middle class type man and he had a woman that was living i still to this day don't know was that his wife was that a baby's mom girlfriend whatever but he had a young child and i quickly realized that my role in that family was to take care of the the little girl um, and please the man sexually so those became my what i was supposed to be doing it's like 
the little girl needed help or whatever it was. The woman and him did not have any sort of intimacy. They rarely ever talked. She worked at the home and, um, and he was like in and out of the home type of thing. And so when he would be gone, I'd have to stay at home and either take care of the little girl or she'd be at some form of daycare, but I was not allowed to leave the house. And so um, that was my life. It was not for too long that I was there. I say anywhere between like three to six months because I literally to this day, there, there's so many memories that I cannot piece together time-wise because there's too much that has yeah, happened. Yeah, 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 so yeah, that was that was my life in that man's house. So what was the relationship between you and essentially his wife? Like, what what was that like? Like, she, I rarely saw her. I rarely wow. saw her. That's why I'm still confused about what was going on. And I, part of me feels like it was one of those relationships where she was like a baby's mother, a sexless. They had a sexless mar- marriage and like some sort of, I don't know. I don't know if she was maybe a victim as well. I have no idea. I so I wish there was a part of me could really tell that story, but I, I can't because it's not even my yeah. story. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I just know that was a strange situation. And I just remember her, me rarely ever seeing her was mainly me interacting with him and then with the little girl. So yeah. Gosh. You were there for maybe about six months. So then what happened after, you know, after that, what was the next the next thing yeah so i end up actually um being rescued from that home uh one day he of course he had always told me i couldn't leave the house um when we go places in public i'm actually known he's known as my dad not my uncle um just all these weird things and so but one day i felt like i was supposed to run like that's all i could hear was like the holy spirit telling me to run and um, I took off running. <laughs> and when I got to a place where I felt safe enough, I started walking regularly. Of course, at the time, like my, you know, I, because I primarily spoke French, I have this heavy accent and I like, you know, just came from a, a, another country and a police officer pulls me over. Cause it's like, why is this child walking around the street? You know, like, and so he starts to talk to me and immediately he know he can tell like, there's something off here. Like you're supposed to be in school. It's a weekday, but you know, Cameroon, like you can go to school if you feel like it. you don't have to go to school if you don't want to. So I didn't understand the rules here in America. I'd been to private school. Yes. And all these different things, but I didn't know like, oh, it's mandatory that people be here in school. And so he's asking these questions and I can't even like explain to him. And so he does my more background check. And of course, like immediately they put me in foster care. Like, I, I don't even know. It was such a quick process, but like they, I end up in the foster care system so immediately when I got picked up and and rescued Mm -hmm. so how long were you in the foster care system for I was in the foster care system till I turned 18 so and I say that 13 to 18 yeah I say that because my first foster home I actually that was the second time that I got raped so the first foster home that I went into was supposed to be a safe home all these great things the foster mom was just essentially collecting money okay which most foster homes I end up in that's all they did was just essentially have several kids so they can make an income because you get like 800 to a thousand dollars a month per kid right and so um, a lot of these foster parents use these children as a cash cow and so she had an 18 year old son who was not supposed to be in the home like usually if you have anyone who's under 18 they have to go through a background check to be within the home he would come but he was never background checked I'd find out later well he raped me and the other girl one of the other girls in the home one night he was drunk and just did whatever so of course we had to be removed from that home go to court prosecute him all these different things um within that same period of time the the system is essentially 
getting into contact with my dad to get my dad back into the country to explain why he sent me here is, you know, like illegally, because I was not, I was not in uh, my papers, I had a green card or whatever, it was not, everything was not processed properly or something. So my dad, of course, always knows how to explain him his way away, right? Oh, that's my a family, distant family member, I planned on coming here, and I just sent her just to kind of prepare for me to move out here because I had something to take care of. So the, the foster care system essentially tells this man who is absolutely insane and is a psychopath or a sociopath to, um, if you can get her enrolled in school and put her in a, in a home, you can essentially have her back. So they give me back to this person who would traffic me. Of course, at the time, I didn't understand that that was trafficking. I know, girl, don't, let me tell you, my, my life is insane, okay? I just try to tell people, whoever my future husband is, he has to brace himself and know that your girl has been through some stuff, okay? <laughs> um, it's been a lot of stuff. So they give me back to my dad. And unfortunately, my dad does not stop his abuse. He does not stop being a, a perverse man towards me. Um, one day he beats me up so bad to where I had a lot of bruises on my face. And when I went to school, I usually was pretty good at covering them up. But one of my math teachers, she saw my face and was just like, is everything okay? And I was just like, oh, I fell and I hit and I'm trying to make all these excuses like I always did. And she was just like, let's go to the office. Next thing I knew, foster, you know, the foster um, CPS comes again and I'm back in foster care and, um, and you know, end up in another toxic home and, and several other toxic homes. I mean, one of the homes, one of the foster brothers tried to, uh, held us all hostage in the home, try to kill us all. Let me tell you, the level of trauma has been real, okay? One of the homes had a foster dad who would make us essentially do sexual favors for him before we would be able to earn our allowance. Mm -hmm. We had homes where um, these, I had a, a home where the foster parents were swingers and I didn't have to witness a lot of the stuff, but this one little boy um, that was in the home, unfortunately had to witness a lot of that stuff with the swinging, which was just devastating. Um, and then I had another one who she would lock up all the food and things and like, not necessarily starve us, but she was very weird with the food. Like, it's like you would, she controlled everything. But then whenever the, the uh, CPS workers would come to the house, she'd unlock everything. The pool would look like we had been swimming around and stuff. When I say it, it was the most disgusting thing. And I tell people out of the 13 homes that I was at from age 13 to uh, to 18, only one home was healthy. One out of all of those homes was actually suitable for a child to be in. And so um, that was my, my life in foster care. Um, but in between that, they let me go back to my dad three times before the final time where they took me forever from him. Um, you know, one of the times when they let me go back to him, he said, oh, well, she, she beats herself up all the time. She's got mental issues and, and is delusional and things, but it's like, you're the one who's hitting me. And these bruises are from you, not from me. Right. But because I was also cutting myself and, oh. you know, depressed, it made like this, them think that, story, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah. The story would, would, would be right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But people were not really asking me questions. They just would listen to him or the adults in the in the homes and not really ask questions. So my dad ended up having me one last time, and we're living in a in a in a home at a at a military base. And he came home drunk one night, said a few things, and like I responded back, like 
how I normally would respond, but he got so angry and beat me up so bad and then locked me up in my room like he would always do. Um, and I just remember again, having this courage, like I need to run. I got to get away from this man. I cannot keep living like this. And so I took off one of my neighbors. She always knew that there was something off with me and my dad's relationship. And so she kind of not necessarily verbally, but it's like, if you ever need anything, just come to my house. And so I ran to her backyard, opened her glass, locked that door. We called the police and my dad's literally chasing me to, like, cause he realized I got out. And so it was, it was the craziest thing. Um, but she essentially helped me escape him for the last time. So the military police comes and um, they're, they can see all of my bruises on my face. He had, my chin was like, pretty much almost dislocated. Like my face was unrecognizable. And, um, and they finally put me, uh, they took me to the hospital, of course, and then they put me in foster care for the last and final time. Um, and then that was that I didn't see him for about nine years. And then I, daddy issues would lead me eventually to try to like bring him back into my life. And then I realized how toxic he still was, but that's another it's like a whole nother story for another time so can i ask you this then when you were in foster care in terms of the families that they were putting you in were they were they a mixture of black and white or was it all black or was it all white and the fact that it was black and white so black and white Mm -hmm. wow because i mean it's because it's it's really I don't know it's 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 just very disheartening to hear like how someone you know if you're if you're black and you know you're in this foster care system like a child has been put into your care to look after but yet you either abuse them yourself or you allow someone in your family to abuse them like I mean why would you allow that to happen was it just because was it because they just wanted the money and that was it so they didn't really care for another life you know i wish i wish i could tell you why they did the things that they did but what i do know is that unfortunately a lot of people are opportunists and um with this with the foster care system it's a very easy way for other abusers to take advantage of of children because these children are vulnerable a lot of them don't have parents and so you're now if you are an abuser a lot of the times it's the prime way to be able to sort of um have more victims you know in in your bag um and it doesn't always have to look like where you're sexually abusing them it could just be even financial abuse which a lot of them were doing where they they would have five kids and if you're having five kids and making you know five thousand dollars a month and then you might have a part-time job that's a good lucrative income you know um and so a lot of them that was really it i don't know what everyone's intentions were i'm sure that some of them started off with the right intentions but some of them didn't end up that way you know so we all just like like satan we start off good sometimes and then things happen and we we want glory for ourselves we want to be the ones that get recognized we want to be able to earn something off of what we think what we say we're doing so some of them they'll look great in public and be advocates of foster care but then we go home and there's they're cussing us out and smoking weed in front of us and doing things that was just very inappropriate and so it's what it is (laughs) yeah wow my gosh so it's so heavy so now that you you know you go to foster care for the final time how did things continue for you you know obviously you would would have been about 18 at this point um yeah yeah like what was life like after from 18 and onwards like did things get worse 
or change or better? Like, yeah, what Things happened? Change. They didn't necessarily get better. Um, they just changed. It was just a different form of abuse. Again, a lot of self sabotage and self abuse, and then introducing others in my life who would continue the cycle of abuse. And so, I essentially uh, I had been running track when I was in high school, and so I had a lot of you know, people who were looking at me scholarship wise and wanted me to be an athlete. And so I, I had a lot of like, I don't know, recognition. And so I went to a community college and I was doing great there. And I had a lot of prospects for like four-year colleges. And what I ended up giving that up because I met a man, my ex-husband, and we got married. Uh, he proposed to me fairly quickly. We got married fairly, uh, fairly quickly. We had our child very quick, fairly quickly. What I didn't really realize in that relationship was that Unfortunately, you know, me and my my ex-husband had both gone through a lot of traumatic things. He had chosen to not work on a lot of his trauma because he didn't believe that he had anything wrong with him. But we essentially were trauma bonded with each other. And so I was very, I, I was thinking that, well, marrying a man of a different race, maybe that will cure some of my anger and hatred towards black men. So he was, he was a white man. You know, I just subconsciously, it's like, well, at least most of my abusers have been black, blah, blah, blah. I'm just, I'm not going to whatever. So I marry a, this man and I'm in a biracial relationship. His mom is literally racist and tells us like, when we find out we're pregnant, ask us if we're going to have an abortion, like things like that. Right. And then just we just perpetuated a lot of toxicity towards one another. He was in the military. So a lot of the times we were drinking a lot, getting wasted, you know, the crazy love yeah. of a young 20, 19, 18, 21 years old, year old. We're punching each other or really it was a lot of the times me because I was so angry. I had a lot of trauma from my childhood. I'd get drunk to kind of forget some of the, the issues that I've been through and would just attack him. And I, I got angry with him a lot because we just, his mom would say things. I felt like he wouldn't protect me. And we just, were just very volatile towards one another. And so it turned from being this thing that was like, you know, crazy in love thing, which we need to not be getting no crazy and love anything with anyone to being just a toxic cycle and toxic relationship. And so um, I, I was very happy uh, when, you know what, let me back up real quick. It's interesting because my, uh, my, one of my, I say my adopted mom, but she's just a woman who's just been really great in my life since, uh, you know, I've been in foster care system, but she remembers, like, I remember her telling me not to marry my ex-husband. And she's not even a believer. She was like, Elsa, don't do this. Do not marry him. You're, I will help you with whatever you need to just don't marry this man. And I was like, please, girl, you're not about to tell me what to do. God expressly told me not to marry my ex-husband. Things happened where I lost my ID when I'm getting my wedding certificate. Well, just things disappeared. My wedding ring got lost a day before my, my wedding. Like all these strange things were just aligning to where it's like, don't do this. And I still did. You still did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so um, the things that I suffered in my marriage, I was not supposed to suffer those things, but I suffered them because of the choice that I made. Mm -hmm. And so um, to still get married and dis be disobedient to God, you know, um, because my son, I had gotten pregnant uh, a month and a half before my wedding. And so like, I didn't have to get married to him. I could have been a single mom, just like I'm, I am now. But there was also this thing like, no, but I want my son to have a father in his life. I don't want him to feel like distant. But the very thing that would have happened then would have still happened today, whether or not I got married to him. So there's just 
a lot of different things. Like we really have to be obedient when God shows us like, that's not your purpose partner. That's not your husband. And when we choose to still continue and we're disobedient, we just let things go. When God is telling us to not do it, you suffer the consequences. And I did, you know, so um, our relationship was so toxic. When I say, I tell people I was, we were swinging, we were like just all these different things. Mm-hmm. My ex-husband knew that I was a, a, I was a trauma survivor and sex, like not necessarily sex trafficking at the time, but he understood what my dad had done to me and sending into that man. He knew that my dad had molested me, but he also had a porn addiction. So imagine someone who has a porn addiction now being married to a sexual trauma survivor. Like that's a recipe for disaster. He, there are things that he wanted in the bedroom that, yeah, I may have done as a, as a, as a, as a traumatized, yeah, but that's not what I wanted. That was not my true desire. Like, you know, it was like perpetuating a cycle of pain in my marriage. And so I was so glad when we were, I was finally released to just no longer be in that relationship and that marriage. And when we got our divorce, my healing truly, truly started. So, yeah. Wow. So how long were you married for? We were married for three and a half years. We're together to a total of seven years, but yeah. Four, so yeah. Seven years four years. Mm -hmm. And then, but three yeah. years married together mm -hmm. and stuff. Was he ever yeah. any type of way to your, uh, to your son? No, he's a great dad. He's, he's not emotionally connected, but he's a great dad. And not, the lack of emotional connection is because of the trauma that he went through that he has never dealt with. Mm. Right. And so he, he's very, um, like he's a covert narcissist to begin with. And then he's also very, um, he's just, he lacks emotional connection. Mm. You know, there's just, it's very stoic and it's, it's sad because one of the things when I met him, who was not, he was non-believer. Um, now he says he, he believes in Jesus, but he just doesn't believe in the Bible. So I'm like, Lord, whatever work you're doing through him, keep doing it because I want to see my son's father saved. I want to see him, you know, understand the love of Christ, the love that Christ has for him. His dad recently died and it's like, you know, I could see him shut down even more, you know? And so it's like, Lord, reach him at some point in time because he deserves to, to feel the love that you have for him that he never received from his father. So, Yeah. And he wouldn't get the help. He wouldn't get the counseling or the therapy. No, no narcissist would ever want, narcissists don't go get help a lot of the times. If they get help, it's because they're about to lose something or lose the narcissistic supply that they've had. And so then they try to pretend that they actually go want to go get the help when they don't really need help. So when they don't really want to get the help. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you, I, I hear you talking about God a lot and, you know, throughout, since we've been talking, when did... Mm -hmm. God really come into your life or when did you really uh, at what age did you invite him into your life especially going through all the stuff that you're going through yeah so I actually came to the Lord when I was three years old I was at a worship service in Cameroon and I remember just when the pastor was preaching just saying I want this Jesus to be my best friend and so I've always been friends of best friends with Jesus and I honestly think that had I not had that spiritual awakening and experience and relationship with God I wouldn't be here today because there's no way in hell that I could have gone through all of the things that I've gone through and still be, be even somewhat in my right mind and so God literally played a huge 
role in essentially introducing himself to me at a very young age because he knew that I would need him for the rest of my life. But he gave me that extension that and that invitation and I accepted it. Now, my spiritual journey with him has not been easy because at some point in time in my life, after I started going through a lot of things, I was like, do you actually even care about me that you're letting me go through all these things? Like what, why are you opening Pandora's box on pain for me 24 seven? Right. And so there are times where I felt I pushed God away. I was angry with him. I just was, was just wanting to step away from, you know, like this relationship that I had with him, but I never actually ever like completely like disowned my, my relationship with God. I've always been with him. My name is, my name Elsa means God is my oath. So like, I've been literally sworn to God <laughs> and he revealed some of the things to me later on in life. When I started going through my healing journey, he goes, I named you Elsa for a reason, because I wanted you to have an oath to me an allegiance to me and to no one else. Um, and so there's these intimate things that God has had to do with me throughout my life that are just so beautiful. And it's like, I can't deny him. There's no way. Like I made an oath to God even before the foundations of the earth. And so, yeah. You know, as you're going through all these things, like, I mean, were you able to even pray or say to god like obviously you said you know what's going on like at the time when you know where either you were molested or you were raped or you were beaten like what was going through your mind did, did like did you ever think of god let this stop or like why because i'm just thinking to myself like for someone to go through that and not hate god or not want to be not want to know god that must have been quite prominent in the in the front of your mind rather than be like god help me like you must have like just thought this god doesn't exist or you know you exist but i hate you was that mm -hmm. was that kind of like how you were feeling at the time yeah some, sometimes i did absolutely or i would just distance myself completely from him and then start to live a life of debauchery right like because it's like you must not be here so like i'm just gonna do whatever everybody else is doing a lot of it was me drinking and being very promiscuous and all these different things that happen to people like me a lot of survivors former foster kids like we end up having this lifestyle that becomes very detrimental to us. That's why foster children, 90% of them end up either homeless on drugs or, you know, dead because 90%. they've, mm -hmm. it's, I, it's between 70 and 90. Last time I checked, it was, it was 90%. So it's not a very good statistic for former foster youth. And so, um, at least not here in the U S but so there are times where I, where I was just very angry at God, but what I just always, what I know about myself is that I'm very self-aware and um, I can feel when I'm disconnecting from him. I can feel when it's a, a spiritual battle versus like, you know, just me just kind of slipping away type of thing. And God has always had a way to rein me back in because I, he just loves me so much and he loves everyone so much. And I think if we are committed enough to just having a relationship with him, he'll always you know, rein us back. And we always have to then just take that, that rope and really accept it and let him draw us back into his presence. So it's such a heavy thing because, you know, I always ask the question, like there's, there, there's gotta be at some point where like, were you angry at God or did you hate God? Because, you know, for someone to go through so much, you can't just keep thinking that this person who created you is, is is allowing you to go through these things i mean we all go through things we have to because it's it's what builds us it it strengthens us you know it, it teaches us wisdom it teaches us so much but that level of trauma is is a lot and you think like god do you really exist like why 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 you know that's always a question with that said 
you get divorced you said that your healing began what type of things did you do in terms of starting your healing process and what were the kind of things did you start to see like you know victory wise and where did god come in the midst of all of that yeah so the first thing i did was just reconnect to god fully so i rededicated my life to the lord um was it eight nine years ago or something like that i can't remember but um about nine years ago i rededicated my life to him it was like i knew that if i wanted to experience the fullness of my healing and really not allow my pain and my past to find me that i would have to like have redemption and restoration through Christ Jesus. And so I did that. And then I just poured my life into the church. Like I was at like every service that my local church had, I was there, you know, it was like, I just needed, I had this hunger and thirst for God. And so of course, when you know that when you're in the presence of the Lord, healing happens, right. And it's not just even being a pre- in the inside a church. It's just even sometimes I remember being so depressed and wanting to kill myself so bad where I would just turn on worship music and cry. And I, I wake up and it was five hours later and music is still singing over me, but I feel life restored to me. Right. So a lot of my healing moments were done very privately with the Lord. Um, and it was done where I, he would tell me Elsa, go to such and such conference, go to such and such ministry to do this and go and go get deliverance from this place and go to this therapist and blah, 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 like different pockets of things he would send me to. And I would just walk in obedience to do it. And I think as I was walking, I was healing, you know, there's that parable with the guy whose, um, sight was like, uh, restored to him at first. He's like, well, what do you see? He sees, I see trees. Okay. Well, like God tells him, Jesus tells him essentially to go to just keep walking. And as he walks, he, his whole eyesight is restored. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that that was partly my experience with the word was that as I just walked in obedience with him, more things just began to heal, more scales began to fall, more memories were restored to me, more um, of who I was created to be just came back to me because what happens with trauma and abuse is that your, your, body, your mind, your spirit becomes shattered. And what you do is you spend the rest of your life recollecting different parts of you from different places and time. And so God will bring different parts of me, my childlikeness, my love for adventure, my love for this and that, that were taken away from me because of abuse. And it's just been a journey. And I'm till this day, I'm still in the healing process because you don't just wake up and all of a sudden are completely healed from the levels of trauma that I've been through and the levels of pain that I've endured. And so, um, you know, but therapy was very important, finding the right therapist, someone who was trauma informed, Mm -hmm. someone who knew how to work with people who had gone through sexual abuse and things like that. And so, um, and then of course, like deliverance ministry, I went through several deliverance ministers who knew how to deal with the spiritual side of things because yeah, we can deal with the physical side of things, but there's also spiritual aspect that is warring after your bloodline that is coming the spirit of death. There's a spirit of perversion. We've got these Delilah and Jezebelic spirits and different kingdoms that were trying to attack my bloodline and my body and who I was. And I had to make sure to take care of that in in the spirit realm as well. And then just being around healthy community. I think that we forget sometimes that community is a place to heal. Mm -hmm. And so God brought me around people who just loved me back to life. Okay. Like just love the the life into me. And it was so beautiful. And so I healed in community and in the local church and just, um, it was great. And I was able to stand back tall and begin to now then go, okay, so God, 
what do you need from me? Um, how do you want me to share my testimony? And how do you want me to impact people? You know, and in the past, my goal and my path was criminal justice and law. I was going to go be an attorney and help to advocate for, for um, survivors of abuse. And God one day told me, Elsa, yes, I, I called you to counsel people, but it, it's not legal counsel. And I said, what? I'm not going to be a lawyer. What do you mean, God? He goes, I want you to be a counselor. And I said, I'm not trying to listen to anybody's problems. I don't have time for this. Like, you know, I've had enough issues of my own. I don't know if I can mm -hmm. even handle listening to people's issues. And I was trying to run away from it. But the more I sat in what he said to me, I realized, Elsa, you've been teaching and preaching and coaching people for years now. I've always been the helper, always been the person re who rescues people from their pain. And it just made sense that that was what he created me from the beginning of, of time to do. And so um, I realized that part of my journey in going through so many painful things was that he was calling me to teach people how to essentially repurpose their pain, that not allowing painful situations to mark you and make you something else what that the enemy wants you to be, but instead allowing any painful situations that God lets you go through to be a thing that glorifies him mm -hmm. and also um, brings other people to a place of healing and understanding who the Lord is. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think you kind of like pretty much answered the, the main, one of the main questions which I was going to ask you is in going through what you have gone through, what has it allowed you to now do for others? What are the things that you are now advocating for or you're working or the people that you're working with? Yeah, so um, my day-to-day -day life is being a mental health counselor. I used to do primarily pastoral care and pastoral counseling, but now I do some levels of clinical you know, mental health. Um, and I see primarily uh, uh, trauma survivors and abuse survivors. Um, a lot of people end up being like survivors of narcissistic abuse. Um, I work with a lot of people who have gender identity issues and people struggle with depression and anxiety and then with couples. So those are the main people that I work with. Um, and then I also do life and business coaching, but the life coaching that I do is not just like, well, let me just coach you for your life. Cause that's a nice buzzword for everybody on, on, on clubhouse and all over the world. Now everybody's a life coach, but I'm actually oh, yeah. certified, certified like life coach, right? Um, but what I do is actually more about purpose coaching and helping people to activate their like purpose businesses if they're called to that. So I'm able to speak to people and it's like, it's part of my prophetic gifting, but I'm able to look at a person, look at their life, learn their story and be able to tell them, ah, this is what God created you to do. Here's the problem that you were created to solve. And so what I do is I walk people through a process, a 10 week um, process of understanding their life purpose, because a lot of us are living here on this earth. Yeah. Working some nine to five job or doing whatever we think is our purpose. But at the end of the day, um, we're, most people are not living their life purpose. I get, I wake up every day knowing that what I'm doing is exactly what I was actually called to do in this day and time. And so I help other people do that. And because I have like a lot of business acumen and just like, um, crafts and skills, we, my company, one of my companies, what we'll do is we'll help people come up with their branding and their website and all that type of stuff. Just a very basic kind of, but nicely done that is in alignment with their purpose so they can actually launch and do the work that they're supposed to do. So they're multi things. And of course, 
I speak and 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 uh, do a few other things. I also have a, a nonprofit organization ministry called Revive 360, where I help um, with missions and mental health, and I merge and blend the two. Mm -hmm. And I go and teach uh, or uh, different organizations how to do like psychological first aid and help to uh, survivors of abuse and everything. So yeah, that's what I do on a regular basis. So full on. I mean, you really just dived into with the whole helping and really letting helping people become survivors and you know victorious in whatever their whatever trauma or abuse that they've gone through. Last sort of question, I guess, which I think is quite an important thing, and I know this is usually hard for a lot of Christians and non Christians to do. Forgiveness have you forgiven or you've been able to forgive um your father those people the people in the foster homes and your ex-husband as well how has that been yeah so forgiveness is definitely a journey and it's been a journey for me so there's certain people in my life that i've been able to forgive a lot quicker um, because naturally I'm a person who literally the movie Frozen was written about me. Okay. <laughs> the let it go thing. Like I'm literally the queen of just like, let's let it go. Let's move on. Like very, like her characteristics are very much really like me. Um, but I'm very big on not harboring on things and not allowing things to, to sort of like take a hold of me, which is good and bad because then when you don't really when you don't really process things long enough to realize the impact it's had on you, then it gets trapped in different parts of your body and it manifests in, in different mental right. illnesses and yep. different physical illnesses. And so I found myself doing that a lot throughout my life, but because I would forgive, but then I'm not really processing that. Oh, that actually was like very hurtful. And then I'd let the person back in my life and then they hurt me again. Right. And so, um, I've had to learn that forgiveness is a journey, that it's something when God, when Jesus says to forgive seven times, 70 times, 77, like he really means that because he knows that you're going to forgive that person one day. And then three days later, you see them and you want them dead. Right. And so it's like he's and then you have to go, oh, no, nope, listen, I already forgive you. I'm going to let me, Lord, I just ask that you would, for, you would help me forgive this person again. And that, one of those people has been my dad, where I feel like, I had forgiven him and I was good. And then I'm in therapy and a new memory come up and I'm just angry again and going, this man really ruined my life. <laughs> you know, like I didn't have to go through all these things. And then I had to just calm down again and go, Lord, help me to forgive him. He did not know what he was doing. He himself was abused. He himself mm. he's demon, he's demonized, Lord. Like, and then I have to get into praying for this person who has hurt me, right? And so that's why the word tells us to pray for our enemies and to bless those who despise us and despitefully use us. You know, I've had to learn to do those things. And it's not something that has been easy. It's just something that I have made a choice to consistently do in order for me to live a life of freedom. Because at the end of the day, when we don't forgive people or we don't practice a lifestyle of forgiveness, the only person that gets held hostage is us. The person who has done something bad to you, listen, they're living their best life, okay? My dad is traveling the world, doing all sorts of stuff, signing on musicians, you know? He signed one of his brothers, who was all, one of my abusers as well, into a music label, and he's doing great things all over the world. You know, they're, they're living their life. They're not phased, not one bit. 
But if I sit there and I harbor and I hold all of this stuff and I'm trying to hope that they're going to be drinking the poison that they gave to me and it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. I have to let it, let it go. Yeah. And letting go does not mean that you don't acknowledge what a person has done. Letting go is remembering. So that's why God does not, we don't forget things. Okay. When people are forgiven, forget, no, I'm not going to forget because I need to remember what you did to me so that I don't make another mistake again. Right. Right. So I'll forgive you, but I will establish new boundaries that say you don't get to be a part of my life anymore. Right. I'll establish new boundaries that say you're a toxic person and, and I don't get to engage with you moving forward. I establish new boundaries. And so, um, but yeah, forgive, forgiving is important, but forgetting is, is we, we, the only person we can actually get is is god so yeah yeah absolutely absolutely okay so um my final question is this because you obviously you've talked about the whole we talked about your journey being trafficked and you know at such a young age what what are the things to look out for if someone is being you know trafficked human trafficked because it can be anyone around us and what kind Mm -hmm. of things do we need to be looking out for and of concern and who to call and organizations obviously i know in america that they have certain ones and i know in the uk so i'll just put them in the description box but what are the things to look out for when someone is being trafficked yeah so there's a lot because trafficking looks in like lots of different ways there's labor trafficking there is you know um, trafficking of human body parts and things there is trafficking uh you know for sexual you know like escorts and things like that. There's a lot of different types of trafficking. But what I always say is that think about the homeless person on the street Mm. or the homeless girl on the street. Those are the most highly trafficked population of people because they're already vulnerable, right? Those young girls who are runaways, those are the ones that are most likely going to be trafficked. So you want to look around, okay, why? who is this adult person that she's with? Does, is that a parent, you know, um, ask if they need help, like people who look vulnerable, vulnerable populations are going to be the number one people that you need to pay attention to, especially in downtown areas, because a lot of the times um, trafficking is also prostitution, right? Trafficking, like I, one of the things I didn't share with you when I was in um, middle school, whatever you want to call it, middle school, high school, beginning of high school, um, a man pimped me, you know, for a while. And so that is a form of trafficking, being pimped. And my lunches, I described to people, were me going and servicing grown men who knew that I was a pubescent child for like $20, $30, $100, giving it to this guy who everyone's like, oh, that's your boyfriend. Because I was, it wasn't that time when every, all the young girls and teenagers had older boyfriends. He was like 30 something years old and I'm young and I have this older boyfriend. And so you have to think about the girl who's hanging out with this older guy that you're like, well, what's that relationship like? You want to think about the girl who everyone's like, oh, she's a stripper. She's a hoe. Is she really a stripper and a hoe or is she a victim? You know, mm-hmm. um, we have to think about the the people who don't always give you eye contact and the people who look really timid and scared and you can, they're disheveled, like, you know, uh, either pray and intercede for them or just even ask, hey, is everything okay? Right. Just asking a question is good. There, there aren't really necessarily clear cut signs, right? It's people always think of trafficking as, and this girl was walking down the street and then someone snatched her and took her away. It's, that it doesn't really happen always that way. That's like very small percentage, but what will 
typically always happen is the, the vulnerable populations like the homeless people, foster cares, um, young single moms and women, um, you know, young high school girls who are thinking I'm just going to a party, blah, blah, blah. And of course, a lot of immigrants, you know, but the number one most trafficked population group in the US actually is black women, black teenagers, you know? And so a lot of times we think, oh, it's Becky with the blonde hair. No, because that's who they show in the media, but our black women are being trafficked the most period in America. Now, overall in the world, Asian women are the most trafficked. And so, but in America, it's black women and teenagers. I saw that, um, I think I saw the statistics on the UN website when I was kind of like doing my research and that, that North America has the highest, globally, highest rate of human, uh, of trafficking. And it was women. Mm-hmm. I didn't really, yeah. it, it didn't go into detail if it was black women, but women were the highest. So now that you're saying that it's black women, that's quite high. Wow, that's, that's it's, it's astonishing, absolutely yeah, astonishing. And, and, and trafficking looks like that girl who comes from the Ukraine and they're like, she's like, I'm gonna become a model. Mm, and then she yeah. ends up being some military guys, you know, home sex doll, mm. right? Like that's what a lot of it ends up being, right? It's these, it's these married abroad that's why i don't watch these type of shows because if you really go deep into it these are women who are coming from vulnerable populations that are now you know getting married to these wealthy you know whatever men who are perpetuating a cycle of pain on them right and so yeah it's 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 a lot and um a lot of amazing organizations out there traffic 911 a21 campaign i mean if you literally just look online you're going to find so many out there um the one thing i will always tell people is that make sure you you see uh how much they actually donate or uh, put into the work for the survivors, right? right? If a company does not spend more than 80% on the actual cause and it's more administrative, don't support them. So be very mindful because Thank what you. they'll do is they they might be making millions of dollars, but if 80% is administrative fees, the CEO is making more money well, and the survivors are not really yeah. the help that they actually need. So yeah. whatever organization you kind of look at out there to go learn more about this or to even support to the cause, which I'll be doing more work around that uh, towards the end of this year um, through my, my 501c3, but um, just make sure that you're aware of that financial piece of things, because that's another way I think that these organizations, they know they can make a lot of money out, out of this, and so they do, and it's it's more exploitation upon exploitation, yeah. so. Wow, yeah. thank you so much for that. That's, that's really, really good to know, because I didn't know that, so that's absolutely fantastic information and whatnot. My but um, honestly, it has been, insightful enlightening talking to you and hearing your story and i'm just so glad that that you are definitely not what you went through at all whatsoever obviously the journey for healing is still continuous but you're definitely better off than you were i mean you've got businesses looking after your child you know you 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 go around the country and you know around the world talking and advocating doing your work and obviously your purpose is clear as to what you need to do so you know i totally thank god for you know for using you the way that he is doing so um if people wanted to get in touch with you or like um be a part of your foundation or look into your foundation see how they can help like how can people get in contact with you what websites do they need to go and look at so that um yeah so that they can just like reach out to you yeah so if you want to get a hold of me you can just go to my website elsachristie.com so www.elsachristie.com um i'm on all social media platforms my um name is at i am elsa christie 
Um, and then also, uh, you know, Revive 360 is the, is the uh, foundation name, but there's a tab on there that will take you to a page for the organization that I kind of do my ministry through. Um, it's on there. So if anyone wants to donate to that, they can, um, they'll get their tax stuff or whatever through there. Um, and yeah, that's, that's how they can connect with me, but I answer DMs. Um, I'm very, I try to stay engaged. So follow me, um, share my story when this, uh, you know, with this, through this podcast and everything and just like stay engaged and, and just start noticing um, people a little, bit, a little bit more. I tell everyone, notice the people that um, we don't often notice and we can start to change people's lives. So yeah, yeah. definitely. Awesome. Well, Elsa, thank you so much uh, for joining me in this episode. Again, like I said, it's been so enlightening and hearing your story and just what's going on. And again, I thank God for your life just absolutely awesome make sure that you uh, follow Elsa and check out all his stuff so that you can you know stay in touch and ask questions if you need to as well um now uh you can follow the podcast on Spotify on Apple and wherever you listen to your podcast do uh follow and share and of course on YouTube as well um Lady T official just look at the uh, Candid with Lady T podcast um playlist and 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 uh, subscribe to the channel as well so I'm also going to keep put a list of um, organizations that you can get in touch with, you know, if you've been affected by anything discussed today from the abuse, anything that's triggered you, I'm going to put a list of organizations that you can get in contact with so that, you know, you can get the help, the appropriate help that you need. It's important that you do talk to someone um, about whatever um, has been discussed in this if it has triggered you. So until next time, thank you so much. Elsa, once again, thank you. God bless you. So much for having me. Bless you. Thank mm-hmm. you.